Welcome to Book Shambles. You're listening to an abridged version of this episode. You can listen to the full uncut edition of this episode if you become a Patreon supporter of the show. And that's for as little as $1 a month via Patreon. And uh, you can support us. So just go to patreon.com forward slash. I still say forward slash. I'm I'm nearly 51. Thank you. Uh, Forward slash Book Shambles for more info and how to pledge. Hello, welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. Thanks right off the top to all our Patreon supporters, both new and old. Hope you've been enjoying uh, some of the little bits of Patreon-only content we've been putting up this week. Some book and film recommendations from Robin, the first Patreon-only show-and-tell episode with uh, Robin and Josie and our special guest, Ralph Little. If you'd like to support the podcast and get extended editions of each episode of Book Shambles, as well as lots of other goodies, go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Many of you this week as well have probably enjoyed the return of the Infinite Monkey Cage podcast and one of Robin and Brian's guests on the most recent episode was Brian Green who also has appeared on one of our Stay at Home Festival shows and right before lockdown as well we met with Brian face to face when he was in London briefly and recorded an episode of Book Shambles about his new book. So that is today's episode. We hope you enjoy it. We'll be announcing uh, some of the live streams of remote recordings of Book Shambles we've got coming up soon. So keep an eye out for those. Here is Robin and Brian. Brian, the first thing I want to this seems to be the most kind of human book that you've written and philosophical, I think, as well. Um, this is a book about why we are in, in, in the universe and also how we deal with being in the universe. Of, of all your books you've written, why was it now that you felt that this real... I mean, all your books have had a human touch, but this one in particular is so much about humanity. Well, after all these decades of, of working on physics and writing books and doing other things to bring science to the general public, the one notion that has just come home to me over and over again is that people have this false sense that science is this separate discipline that just sort of describes things that are out there that don't really matter to us as human beings, that they may be curious and tickle the brain and make us interested and give us a sense of wonder, which is all true and great. And those reactions are the kinds of reactions I was shooting for in many of the things that I've done. But I wanted in this book to just make it so clear that these studies, these investigations do really matter to us. They help give us a sense of where we came from and and how we got to be here and what will happen going forward. And that perspective I wanted to bring, that cosmological perspective, I wanted to bring to a wide audience. With this, I mean, first of all, I think sometimes one of the problems which people have, and I I wonder how science can deal with this, is in, in Stephen Hawking's last book, he talked about the fact that the universe might have just come into existence because of the laws of physics. So when we ask, why is there something rather than nothing, you go, it's the laws of physics. And people will still want some story that, I mean, it's, it's one of the things doing the shows with Brian Cox. One of the greatest battles is trying to work out what is the, a magnificent story with the laws of physics, but somehow that is not enough. Yeah, and, and I have to say that I empathize with that reaction. It could well be, I have not read Stephen Hawking's latest book, but I understand the notion, it could well be 
that the laws of physics are enough. It could be that they necessarily dictate a universe coming into being. But the natural question then is, and it's a real question, why are the laws of physics that way? Why aren't they another way? And again, an answer might be one day we'll find that logic alone requires these laws. Any other laws would be internally inconsistent, could not ever describe a rational universe. That would be satisfying. That would go somewhat closer to an answer. But I'd still hanker for a deeper sense of where things ultimately came from. And it might be that there is no answer. It might be that we come to a point we just have to accept that things were the way they were, allowing the universe to come into existence and evolve. But we as human beings seek an anchor in our understanding and we often look at origin stories to fill in, to give us, to hold that anchor down. And the deepest understanding of our origin pushes us to question every story that we're given and ask, why that? Could it go further? Could we go further back? Can we go deeper? And that's what we as physicists certainly try to do. Do you remember a time in your life where you did kind of bump your head on existential anxiety? When you, you talked yeah. in the beginning of the book about you're, you're doing some human psychology homework and suddenly you're, you're drawn increasingly to the answers that mathematics can give you. Right. But well, do you yeah, so certainly when I was a kid, I mean, it goes much further back. I, the story that I tell in the book is a story that happened to me when I was in college. So I was already a little bit older by that point. But when I was 13, 14, I remember walking down a New York City street and, and it just sort of really hit me. Why in the world am I here? You know, why in the world is there a world? And it wasn't just an interesting question. It kind of hit me deep inside. And that was when I really began to think that ultimately I wanted to to study physics because I said to myself, look, if there was an answer, I would know it because everybody would know it, but it doesn't seem that anybody really can answer this kind of a question. And therefore maybe trying to answer it directly is the wrong approach. Maybe you have to have an indirect approach where you don't ask why, but you ask how, how did the universe come to be? How did life come to be? Because sometimes if you know the how, if you know the mechanism, it takes the weight off of the why. You can see the sequence of events that yield life or yield consciousness or you know, yield the sun and the earth as the environment in which life and consciousness emerge and evolve. It gives you at least the beginnings of a story where you can have a semblance of coherence that you can overlay on these questions and these experiences. And and sometimes that just takes the weight off the why because you can see how it came to be. That's one of the questions that I find hardest is I was with a bishop the other day and we were talking about the how and the why. And then he once he went into talking about um, Kantian ethics, I was, of course, lost as I normally am with Kantian ethics. But that for me, that sometimes I think, well, the how question, there might not be a, a why. The, yes. the why. And yet once you get into those philosophical arguments with people of many different religious kind of bents, they will go, no, but the, the, the why it is the ultimate question. And yet the how itself, as you were kind of saying there, I think does deliver. Yes, I, th I think it can. And in fact, one of the approaches I take in, in the book is to argue that a deep understanding requires 
a series of stories, a series of what I like to think of as nested stories that intertwine in interesting ways, but each story provides a different kind of insight. So the physicist story is the reductionist account, right down at the level of the fundamental ingredients, the particles, and the fundamental laws. And on top of that, the chemist comes along and uses those particles to build atoms and molecules. And the biologist then comes along and uses those complex molecules to yield cells and living systems. And as we go up the hierarchy, we then encounter the psychologist who wants to deeply understand the brain and it's working the neuroscientist that contributes deeply to that story and the humanist who comes along and says, okay, what do brains do to try to make sense of the world? What kind of activities do they undertake? You know, philosophy and creative expression and the development of religious traditions. And each of these layers tells you something different about reality, different about the world. And indeed, the how question is best addressed right down at the rock bottom scientific understanding of the world. The why questions then emerge later on when conscious self-reflective minds that we have are able to look around and ask slightly different questions, questions that border on meaning and purpose. And those questions are, are manufactured by human brains trying to understand reality. And if those human brains also simultaneously understand the deep how, it can inform what they mean by the why question. It can give it a different flavor, a different color. And that's one of the other lessons that I think emerges from the approach I take in the book because by the end, I'm encouraging the reader to rethink the nature of purpose and meaning, the nature of the why question in light of the answers provided by physics and science more generally to the how questions. That does seem to be a problem, which is some of the people I've spoken to, to you can't answer, that. they want to answer the why question, but skipping yes. the science altogether. I mean, would just one of the things that, because I found as a non-scientist, which is always very clear when people hear me talk, you know, I find it, uh, the more that I've worked with scientists, the more that I've done shows with them, the more that I've interviewed them, the more satisfying it is to believe that I'm born and then I die. Yeah. And that there is, there's a line you have at the beginning which reminded me very much of one of my favourite Beckett lines. I think it's one of the greatest lines opening any play where he says, birth was the death of him. Mm. And I think, man, that is... Uh, and so this idea, I, I want to talk about the entropy because that, that's a, a lot of uh, the, the, the start of the book is looking at uh, the fact that from incredible order comes disorder and with disorder comes ultimately life. And you talk about this entropic two-step yeah. Can you tell me, what, what is the entropic two-step? Yeah, so I think many people are familiar with the rough idea of entropy. It's a measure of the disorder, this organization in a system. And I think many are also familiar in one way or another with the second law of thermodynamics, which says that disorder tends to increase over time. And when you hear that, disorder increasing over time, and you think back to the Big Bang, if you have some understanding of how things got started, you're naturally led to ask, how could stars and planets and living systems form because they're ordered collections of particles. Where would that order come from if the universe is always going toward disorder? And that's where this entropic two-step comes into the story because although the overall disorder has to go up over time, according to the second law of thermodynamics, you can have little pockets of order form so long as in the process of their formation, they emit 
They inject enough disorder, waste, heat, light into the environment to compensate for their internal order. And that two-step basically is saying order can form over here so long as a compensating amount of disorder forms over there. So that overall, the entropic budget sheet is always going up. And, and that's the reason why we have structure in the world. It's the reason we can have stars and planets and galaxies and people. Because without the entropic two-step, entropy would simply go up, particles would just disperse, and there'd be no interesting structures in the universe. Is it a journey to low entropy again? Is that the I, I was trying to work out recently that the, the point where the, the universe becomes in, entirely again, where there, there is an utter sameness. Yes. And ultimately, this is sorry, this is kind of because it always really confuses me, this idea, but the idea that there will eventually become a point where there are no more events in the universe. Yes. So and that's that's the far future when stars have disintegrated into their particles, planets and all other structures have finally fallen apart, fully degraded as the second law of thermodynamics requires. And the universe is just a bath of particles that are wafting this way and that through an ever larger universe. And in some sense, that's the end of all events. Because if the only thing that happens in the universe is a particle moves from here to there, well, that's not interesting enough to really have anything to record or to give evidence that there's any happening whatsoever. And you could say that's the end, the end of the universe, the end of time, the end of everything interesting. But as I also describe in the book, if you allow your time scales to go even longer, and this comes to your intuition, it's absolutely possible that some rare event happens that allows the entropy to go down in some large region of space and perhaps start the universe again, or even weirder things. You can even have the particles come together to coalesce into a human brain floating in the void that thinks it's having sensations, like the sensations that you and I are experiencing right now. But in reality, it's just particles in the void that have come together to yield the sensations of a human brain without any of the attendant history that we are familiar with that leads up to the emergence of a human brain. So the point is, Although the second law of thermodynamics says there's an overwhelming tendency of entropy to increase, on rare occasion, if you wait long enough, far, far longer than the age of the universe, entropy can go down. So that means that this could start over again in the very, very distant future. Because that's why whenever I read your books, that I have to put in, remember that I mustn't read them at normal speed of books. You know, there's a bit where you go, I must now look out the window for quite a long time. You know, the Boltzmann brain there, yes. which is like such a, uh, again, I suppose this is the battle, which is the, what is, when sometimes ideas of reality comes up, and, and of course you, you talk about that in the, in the hidden reality as well, which is people wanting to believe there is some kind of base underlying reality. Is there a base underlying reality or are there, is there a, a probabilistic, you know, a kind of a quantum world, which is a selection of probabilities and it only becomes reality upon observation. So the idea of there being a deep reality underneath all this, there is a point where you go, well, there isn't the idea of a single reality which says this is the ultimate definition of the universe beyond all the limitations of our um, senses. Yeah. Is it, would it be fair to say that that's not really... A truth. Well, it partly depends on your definition of what constitutes a reality. And as a physicist deeply immersed in the quantum paradigm, I would say that reality is 
the probabilistic description of the positions and the motions and more generally the quantum state of the particles. So I would say that is reality and it is also the case, as you point out, that when you look at reality or more generally when you measure reality, you affect reality and it can snap out of this probabilistic quantum haze and assume a single definite configuration or state of being. But that to me is just an interesting event that can take place in a quantum universe. But the quantum description of reality in terms of a range of probabilities dictated by the equations of quantum mechanics, that is reality. That is the rock bottom reality. So I've had a very narcissistic view of reality. Yeah, that's like, right. Yeah, yet again, this is so typical of me. That's why I'm in the arts. It's all the narcissism. Um, I also wanted to... Uh, well. You you talk you, you have a quote from Bertrand Russell. I think I've, I've taken it. That the uh, the universe has crawled by slow stages to a somewhat pitiful result on this earth, and is going to crawl by still more pitiful stages to a condition of universal death. Yes. And you also talk about I, I think an event you did on an off Broadway show, a discussion you had, yes. where again you kind of talked about we're just you know this this mundane planet and near you know pretty drab sun, and that does seem to be sometimes one of the issues where when when those quotes are brought out like for instance when talking about the idea that this is just a it's a very average solar system with a very average star at it at its center but i was wondering reading that in terms of stars that aren't average what is the likelihood of their existing around them planets that will have life does it require a mundane star well we don't know the answer to that question it's one of the great discoveries of the last 10, 15 years, that most stars do seem to have planets in orbit. So that's fairly commonplace. In our galaxy alone, it's been estimated, there could be, you know, tens of billions of planets. And a significant fraction of those might have conditions that would be hospitable to some form of life that we can imagine existing. But that's not enough to give any predictions about how likely it is that there's life out there in the universe. I do think it's likely just because I have the intuition I think many people share. There's just so many opportunities for life to form out there and therefore there's a sense that it must have happened somewhere else as well. But you know, think about it. Life is one thing and intelligent life is quite another. If we find a planet out there that has bacteria, that will be a monumental discovery because we can, in principle, study that form of life. We can compare it to life here on this planet. Maybe that will give us insight into how likely our form of life is or how likely a different form of life is. Great discoveries. But it would still be a pretty lonely place, this universe of ours. We'd have nobody else to talk to. So intelligent life is the real deep and interesting question. And we have no idea the likelihood of intelligence forming once life forms. Maybe on our planet, it was just a lucky accident that, you know, this asteroid slammed into our planet, wiped out the dinosaurs and allowed our form of life to, you know, surmount and take over. And here we are able to communicate and talk and think about things and figure out that there was an asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs. But without that, you know, it could still be the dinosaurs walking around. Who knows, maybe at this point they'd be talking to each other and conversing, you know, having set up countries and businesses and commerce. I don't know, but maybe not. 
maybe it would just be dinosaurs walking around as they were 65 million years ago. That's why I, I love that moment where you talk about meeting an extraterrestrial. Oh, yeah, we used to think mathematics was the language of the universe, too. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> a deep question. So if there is life out there and intelligent life and they've figured out aspects of the world, would they have followed the same intellectual trajectory that we have? Would they ultimately have relied on mathematics to figure things out? And I allow for the possibility, as I describe in the book, that they wouldn't have. In fact, they might look at our mathematics and smile quaintly and say, oh, polite, you know, trying to give us, you know, a nice pat on the back for what we figured out. But they may have discovered a wholly different approach to understanding reality that we've yet to figure out at all. Because that's the, if, if extraterrestrials communicate with us first, it's going to be a real knock on the ego, isn't it? Because it will mean that they are more intelligent. And we, we don't deal well with uh, that generally as a species. Well, yeah, you know, you know, and people, you know, get intimidated by that idea, fearful of that idea that maybe those extraterrestrials would actually be interested in wiping us out or something of that sort. I mean, you know, as even Stephen Hawking was fond mm -hmm. of saying, you know, when one culture encounters a different one, it doesn't always turn out so well. There is a sense of trying to conquer and a, and a desire to do that. And if that's the disposition of the aliens, the extraterrestrial life, maybe we should be fearful of their arrival. You know, I, I really don't know how far you can extrapolate from this barbaric planet Earth to how the life in the universe would behave. But yes, it's a real, it's a real interesting question as to whether that would be a friendly encounter or not. That's why we need to have monthly screenings of The Day the Earth Should Still, original version yeah, of the remake with Keanu right. Reeves. Um, Sorry to interrupt your podcast, but I just quickly wanted to let you know about the thing, which is that Book Shambles and the Cosmic Shambles Network exist thanks to generous pledges of our listeners on Patreon. If you want to support the podcast and what we do, tiers start at just $1 a month, and you'll get all sorts of goodies thrown in. So go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Well, it does seem that, especially in the last 100 pages, there's a lot which kind of comes back to only connect. Yeah, the the uh, and, and you talk about, for instance, you, you know, your father, who was a musician and a composer and the importance of music to him. And, and you have a few quotes, from Nietzsche and various others in terms of I can't remember Nietzsche's, but, you know, music without uh, life without music is, 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 is pointless or a tragedy, yeah. whatever yeah. it might be. But but that connection of art seems to play a great deal uh, of a part in, in, in your book. And, yeah. and how much do you think when you were growing up to be in a house where you had art around you? Yeah. Yeah, I think it has deeply influenced my perspective on the world. I mean, I would be in my room doing my homework, you know, doing calculations for the math class. And, you know, my father's student, I mean, some of them were famous people like Harry Belafonte would be in the living room, you know, singing Deo. And, you know, my, you know so so that that confluence between the two, I think, has has deeply affected me because, you know, when I was little, my dad would always say math and music, they're the same thing. And I was sort of nod. I didn't really know what he meant when he said that. I was like, well, does he mean like the fractions of a measure that a note? Is that the mathematics? No. What he meant was, and I understood later on, it's the patterns. Mathematics is the language of patterns. Physics is an approach to the world to find the patterns and encapsulate them in the language of mathematics. And what is music? Music is the human brain making up patterns that are deeply satisfying to us because they capture some coherence of the world that matters to us. 
And from that perspective, the journeys are resonant with one another because the journey, say, of my dad or other composers, you know, the greats, you know, Bach, Brahms, Beethoven, were trying to capture patterns in music that would say something to us as human beings. We physicists are trying to capture the patterns of the universe, ideally in a way that matters to us as human beings. Yeah, your story about Beethoven and your story about Helen Keller. And yeah. Them, I think, uh, but I, I, the, the, uh, the, the music, I, I thought it was also very interesting. You talked about when your father died and, mm. and uh, he wasn't a, a, a religious man and, and you're not a religious man, but you found that when, uh, I can't remember which group of, uh, was, was it Jewish elders? Came yes, exactly. And, and, yeah. and they're, they're singing. It was a very, still an important moment. Yeah. And, 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 you know, so that comes from a chapter in the book where I focus on religion, something I've not written about before, but something I've thought about deeply for a long time. And, and look, there are a lot of scientists who are in the world saying that religion is silliness. It needs to be discarded. You know, it was part of the infancy of the species. We've matured beyond it. And let's let religion go. And I understand where they're coming from. But I believe and I feel strongly that they're looking at religion in a way that is not commensurate with what religion is actually about. Religion is not about explaining the external world. So, yeah, if you're going to look at Genesis and compare it to the Big Bang, yeah, the Big Bang theory is far more predictive and it gives us a deeper sense of how the universe evolved from the beginning. And, and certainly it triumphs over any religious description. However, that's not what religion is about. Religion is not about explaining the objective external world. It's about giving us guidance, at least for some of us, for an inner journey that allows us to make sense of our lives and a sense of how we fit into the grander whole and the, the spiritual journey to understand conscious awareness. These are the things that religion can offer guidance on. And the example that you recount from the book, yeah, my dad died. And you're right. He was not religious. I'm not religious, as I describe in the book. But it was deeply comforting to have a religious ritual that was carried out by individuals who are religious because it gave me a, gave me a sense of connection to a thousand, multi-thousand year long history that allowed me to deal with grief in a way that otherwise I would not have access to. So that inner sensation of grief at the death of a parent, religion provided me guidance and it provided solace and it provided comfort. And for that, I was deeply grateful. So I don't want to get rid of religion. I think that we need to discard the parts that offend us, discard the parts that make no sense to us in the modern age. We can cherry pick and retain the parts that speak to us in a deep manner. And for me, the connection to a multi-thousand-year-long history, that heritage really matters. And that would be something I would not want to ever lose. It's interesting because the, the battle of science versus religion seems... It should have just been science versus dogma from the yes. other because the of course religion is of often uh, you know is a vehicle for dogma but that would also then cover Stalinistic science and all of those different things because I always find that intriguing with the, the sometimes debating with whether it's religious people or whether it's scientific people as a, as a non-religious person is where God lives in in the brain and I think it, some scientists kind of imagine that the, the religious people there is this bearded man. And there's not, he's not, the number of religious people I know who fully accept the ideas of the Big Bang, of evolution of by natural selection, all those things, 
you can't argue God away from them because that's not in this yes. kind of rational area. Yeah, because when it comes to certain human endeavors, it's vital that we interpret using metaphor, using analogy, using simile to understand what it is that those words mean. And those interpretations can change over time. So when it comes to religious scripture, if we're going to have a literal interpretation, then of course that's going to be in conflict with our 21st century scientific knowledge of how the world works. But that is not the only way of approaching a religious text. We can bring to bear a 21st century sensibility and interpret using metaphor in order to gain some sense of what these words mean to us now. And when we do that, and when we throw away the parts that just don't make sense to us any longer, we are left with something that can offer us a deep connection to a long-standing human heritage, a long-standing human endeavor to try to make sense of our place in the world, our place in the universe. And that's not something that we should discard, it's something we should celebrate. I love, I think it was a line by the, the late comedian Jeremy Hardy who talked about Abrahamic faiths and he said basically what Christianity and Islam are is they're Judaism but they've dropped the jokes which was a terrible <laughs> idea and I think when you see it as the beautiful right. kind of the, the, right. you see it as fables you, again as you mentioned in the book is there was a point in history with creationism where suddenly something which had not been an ultimate truth yeah. the God, is turned into an ultimate truth that's right and that's the problem that's the problematic place when you have a religious tradition of those who currently practice it trying to shoehorn it into a place in the world where it does not fit. But that is not, in my view, the right way of going about it because that's not how the individual human being can make sense of these religious words. How do you find, in terms of ultimate truths, I mean, politically at the moment in, in the West, it, it seems we, we do have problems where the people who promise ultimate truth, who promise the, uh, are, are making a lot of headway. And so science, which is so much about doubt and something, you know, people like Feynman would say he can live comfortably with doubt. Yet a lot of people can't live comfortably with doubt. And that seems to me, again, to be one of the greatest battles. Oh, it is. To, to somehow find a way... But our media doesn't like doubt either. So yeah. finding the place where you can start to even seed doubt is already in some of the niche publications. Yes, it's, 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 an, it's a deep truth that to make sense of the journey toward understanding along the way, on that route, you've got to be comfortable with uncertainty. You've got to be comfortable with doubt. And I, I, the only remedy that I can see for the problem where there are so many people that cannot deal with doubt, that they need the full and final answer in order to be able to feel a solid foundation in the world is through our educational system. In the science classroom, in every classroom, we need to stress to students that there's a beauty to doubt. There's a beauty to uncertainty because that is the opportunity for us to make headway, to make progress, to incrementally understand the world a little more deeply, to rid a little bit of the doubt that came to us from an earlier generation of thinkers. And that's an exciting journey. And that's why we get up in the morning and want to go to work because of the doubt and the uncertainty that we can wrestle with. And I think if, if you get students at a young age they can really make that part of their worldview. They're, they're part of how they are existing in reality, and that would be a vital step forward. I love that, that, that the book on the top of the pile there, Peter Atkins, Galileo's Finger, the end of the first chapter, he talks about the fact that there's, it's extremely unlikely that there is any uh, Neanderthal DNA 
in any of us and that we never and that was 2003 of course by 2008 2009 and it's like oh wow three or four percent it's not that he was wrong he was dealing with the evidence as it was and the way he deals with it I think that's have we what what time do you need to be off you need to be off uh, can I I'll tell you what because I make all these questions I never ask them because whatever you say then I think hang on a minute what about that and then I forget because you go somewhere else and it's uh, I mean mean, there's so many one of the things actually on a a, a kind of more personal side which is uh, You've been a vegetarian since you were nine. You've been a vegan for over 20 years. Yeah. How much does that, does that have a connection also to your view of the universe? And of, I've, I've always wondered that. Well, I actually find them a little bit in tension, if I'm being completely honest, because one of the, the lessons and one of the ideas that I emphasize is that we are all just collections of particles in different configurations, all governed by exactly the same mathematical laws of physics. So it does somewhat occur to me, why would I care so much if the configuration of the particles happens to look like a stem of broccoli versus, you know, the shank of, you know, an animal? And it does matter to me deeply, although I have a little bit of difficulty understanding it at that rock-bottom explanation. Of course, if I go up to a higher level, the reason I feel this way is because it feels to me deeply barbaric to slaughter animals and eat them. It feels to me that, yes, there was a time when that was all that we could do to survive, but there are other things that we can do now that don't require us to butcher other life forms in order that we can survive. And, and that really started when I was nine years old. As you mentioned, my mom made spare ribs. And to that point, to me, that any meal, any meat was just this other thing that came from the supermarket wrapped in, in, in cellophane. I grew up in a city. I had never been to a farm, right? But when the rib was in front of me, it finally hit me that this was the bone of an animal. And at that point, I stopped eating meat immediately on the spot. And later on, I went to an animal sanctuary in upstate New York and learned about the dairy industry. I was happy not knowing. But once I learned about the way that they treated the animal, I just couldn't participate in it any longer. And so I gave up dairy. And that's, as you said, it's been, I guess, now 25 years ago. Yeah, Simon Amstel, I don't know if you've seen him, British comedian, he's done a few movies in New York. He did a very funny feature film about imagining 50 years' time where they view this strange ancient tradition of slaughter yeah, and, and the things yeah. that went on. He's, he's really great. If he comes yeah. out to New York again, you must see him. Uh, there was a, uh, um, a, a time, actually, that's another thing, which was our a sense that there must be an ultimate purpose. Again, seems that there's the, the famous story, and I can't remember who originally it was, the person who did the lecture... And someone puts it down and goes, sorry, can you say, is it, did you just say that the sun's going to swell into a red giant engulfing the earth, destroying it in five uh, million years? Is it billion, five billion. billion. He goes, oh, thank heavens for that. Now, <laughs> that is such an interesting right. thing that, as, as you talk about, the, the, the idea of when is it going to end? Now, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether yeah. it's in 500 years, because we're gone. And yet, if you suddenly told everyone that the Earth was going to end in 500 years, that would have an enormous psychological effect, I think, on on the human population. I I I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, I think part of it comes from the fact that we're not very good at having an intuition for incredibly long timescales. 500 years we can grasp. And if you say that the Earth is going to be gone in 500 years, it's something that immediately we can have an intuition for. But if I tell you that the Earth is going to be gone in 5 billion years or 100 billion years, that's a time frame that's so enormous that we feel like, well, that's infinity. 
that's like eternity and somehow it doesn't matter to us as much and and part of what i try to do in the book is give you an intuition for these enormously long time scales so you don't come to that conclusion and you recognize that whether we're gone in 500 years or 5 billion years or 100 billion years we are gone as you say and on the time scales of the cosmos 500 or 5 billion or 100 billion they're basically the same they're all a blink of an eye relative to the entire cosmological timeline mm -hmm. so we do come to the conclusion that the window on the cosmic timeline when life and consciousness exists is incredibly fleeting even if it's long compared to the lifespan of an individual it is incredibly tiny in the grand scheme of things and that i think if you take it in can have a deep impact on your perspective on how you view life in the universe and self-reflective consciousness in the universe it is is it fair to say it's that that idea that there is an ultimate meaning if you can just instead go right you need to try and find a meaning for your 70 80 90 years yes and, and that, that that's that certainly i found the more science i read the more physics i've read that idea of going there is no the universe will certainly the as far as we can see there will be a point where there is no life yeah and so that's that's destiny that's and there won't be no one will this planet won't exist and there won't be all the buildings that we're in and there won't be some oh a really amazing species lived here and you know one of them yeah. wrote david copperfield that's all gone right exactly and look there has been you know a long tradition of thinkers coming to that conclusion from one or another journey i mean philosophers, you know, wise sages, uh, mindfulness teachers in the modern era have long taught that reality is in the here and now and that's where your focus should be. So I'm not claiming some deep originality by saying that that really is the ultimate answer, that we have to make our own meaning, our own purpose. But I come to that conclusion from a different perspective than all of those teachers through the ages because I'm using our deepest understanding of physics to come to the realization that you and I and everything else are nothing but collections of particles governed by physical law and that ultimately because of the second law of thermodynamics everything will disintegrate and those particles will disperse and it will all be gone and so what do we learn from that we learn that we are the product of the mindless purposeless laws of physics and that we exist by virtue of a sequence of quantum processes stretching back to the big bang each of which could have turned out differently, each of which could have turned out that way instead of this, yielding a universe in which we would not be here. So against these incredible odds, we are here. And not only are we here, our configuration of particles is so astoundingly ordered, it is so exquisitely configured that we can do things, right? We can think, we can feel, we can reflect, right? We can write. Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, at least one member of the species yeah. can, right? We can paint great works, the Mona Lisa, right? We can figure out things like quantum mechanics and the general theory of relativity. And so that just speaks to the wonder of what particles can do if they're correctly configured. And for a brief moment in the history of the cosmos, there are these configurations of particles and we should celebrate that. We should be humbled by the fact that that's all that we are, particles, but we should also celebrate the fact that our configuration of particles can create beauty, right? It can experience wonder, it can illuminate mystery, 
And to me, that's what it is all about for a brief moment in the cosmological unfolding. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you to our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to support the podcast and everything we do at the Cosmic Shambles Network. Get extended editions of the episodes and lots of other stuff as well. We'll be back next week with another new episode. I think next week will be the last episode that we have got in the can from the before times. Uh, So that'll be fun. Take care, stay safe, don't test your eyesight by driving 40 miles, and we'll see you next week. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. 